Describe the kinds of things Susan would do with you growing up. We were inseparable and it was a crazy involvement. She had a, a depth of love for those who were friends and family. Just an appreciation of how precious those relationships were that was remarkable. She also was very bright and very entertaining and um, incredibly supportive. What were some of her negative qualities? She was incredibly manipulative, extremely fearful, extremely controlling. She would soar high when she was going after something and she could, she could collapse. What was her demeanor when you told her, you know what, I want to stay with you? She was touched and relieved. There was a, a deep gratitude in our relationship as, as mother and daughter having both kind of been orphans and found each other. Um, so our relationship, her being able to be a mother, me being able to be a daughter, was really precious and probably like with a biological mom. And she was telling me about her friend and how his wife had disappeared and how she had been an alibi or made a phone call for him so that it wasn't suspicious. And um, she left it kind of like a cliffhanger. I, you know, I was, she left me in suspense, like, did he do it? And she kind of smirked and said, I don't know, you know, what do you think, kind of thing. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We began this season with an in-depth exploration of the life of Susan Berman, the woman whom Robert Durst is charged with murdering. While we've delved into areas of Susan's life that have nothing to do with the man on trial, the jury has, up until now, been presented with only a narrow view of Berman, as the defense and prosecution paint a picture of her that fits with their respective narratives of Robert Durst. Last week, however, the jury heard from a witness who offered a singular perspective on Susan Berman, Mella Kaufman, a young woman who was, for all intents and purposes, Susan's daughter. In this episode, we'll hear from Mella about her relationship with Susan, including the early tragedies that seemed to bond them together and the revealing secret that Susan shared with Mella before her death. We will also get an update from reporter Charlie Bagley about Robert Durst's condition after a medical incident kept Durst from reporting to court on Thursday. That's all coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Joining us to talk about Robert Durst's medical condition is Charlie Bagley, who is covering Durst's trial for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So, Charlie, there was some suggestion that in various jailhouse calls, Durst indicated he might try to fake some sort of illness in order to avoid coming to court. How real was the medical incident that 
Judge Wyndham alluded to in court on Thursday. Carrie, from what I'm hearing, they still haven't quite gotten to the bottom of exactly what happened on Thursday. However, even on Thursday, his vitals were good. So I, I think there was something real, but I still haven't been able to figure out exactly what it was. And Charlie, what is Robert Durst's current medical condition? Will he be in court on Monday, do you think? Yes. From what I'm hearing, uh, as of Sunday afternoon, he will be in court. He's okay and ready to go. Fantastic. Charlie Bagley, thanks again for being with us. And we look forward to catching up with you on our Tuesday episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Thank you, Kerry. And now our special bonus episode on the poignant and powerful testimony of Mella Kaufman, the woman who considered Susan Berman her mother. Deputy District Attorney Habib Balian guided Mella Kaufman through a difficult day of testimony. Now in her 40s and a mother of two young children herself, Kaufman was reluctant to revisit the painful memories associated with Susan Berman's murder. I, um, emotionally, everything having to do with my mother's murder and this case um, is so difficult that approaching it at all is a um, something I, I'd rather avoid. <laughs> while Susan and Mella were not biologically related, and while Susan did not officially adopt her, Mella testified during Prosecutor Balian's direct examination that Susan was, in essence, her mother. I had had a lot of inconsistency and um, it was hard for me to trust family. When, when you first met her, did you trust her? No. Did your relationship with her develop over time? Yes. How close did you guys become? Uh, mother and daughter plus, I would say. Mella Kaufman is the biological daughter of Paul Kaufman, a man who Susan had known during her brief time at the Chadwick School in the early 60s. Shortly after Susan's marriage to Mr. Margolis fell apart in 1984, she became reacquainted with Kaufman through a mutual friend and dated him during the late 1980s and early 1990s. Around how old were you when you came home and here's Susan Berman in your life? Sixth grade, middle of the year, probably 11. Eventually, did she uh, form a relationship with your father? Yes. What type of relationship? First it was a friendship and then it became romantic and quick to an engagement. For Mella, Susan was just the latest in a string of female friends his father brought home. Who was your, uh, who are your biological parents? Uh, Judy Hamilton and Paul Kaufman. Are they together today? No. They separated when I was two and a half. Okay. What type of interactions did you have growing up with your biological mother? I would see her on weekends between the ages, I believe, of maybe six and 13. Okay. Not every weekend. How about um, Paul Kaufman? Growing up, how close were you to him? Uh, not very. How active of a parent was Paul Kaufman in your life? Not active at all. Neglectful. But even before Susan and Paul started dating, she developed a connection with Mella. What was your first impressions of Susan as a sixth grader coming home from boarding school and you meet this woman? What was your first impressions of her? She was really unique. 
she was able to essentially send what was my father's girlfriend, Karina, um, to her bedroom over dinner in a subtle and socially acceptable way, which I found fascinating. So I was very, um, you know, fascinated, interested. Somehow, with comments that Susan made, uh, Karina got so upset that she rushed off to the bedroom in a huff and didn't stay for dinner. Uh, Karina was a large part of the reason I went to boarding school, and there was a knowingness between Susan and I, like we had a knowing glance. Are you saying that at that table when she did this, she gave you some form of a look? Yes, a sweet look, a sideways look. It looked like I'm taking care of her for you. (laughs) Okay. Did you at some point on your trips back home from boarding school get to know Susan a little more? Oh, yes, absolutely. And at some point, did you come to realize this woman is going to remain uh, a part of my life? Yeah, I, I would say probably within six to eight months we had become incredibly close. And it was not long after that that she was very clear in her conversation with me that she would never disappoint me or abandon me like my other parents had. She said that to you? Yeah. Soon after this incident, Susan encouraged Paul to bring Mella back from boarding school. Shortly after that, Paul, Susan, Mella, and her older brother, Sarab, started living together as a family. Describe the kinds of things Susan would do with you growing up. Well, there was so much. It's, um, we did homework together. We did, we we sat at the kitchen table and and talked endlessly. We went out to dinner together. We went to yoga. She would read all sorts of books and hand them on to me. We'd watch series and movies together. We'd go to, you know, library to work on a school project. She would involve me in her work projects. I think she wanted to see if it would spark interest or just expose me. We ran errands together. I went with her on errands. From 11 until I went off to college, we were inseparable and it was a crazy involvement to the point where, um, you know, I I actually felt extremely controlled. (laughs) People who knew Susan have said she had a larger-than-life personality. While Susan tended to leave a strong impression, it wasn't always a positive one. Being close to her, Mella knew both her positive and negative attributes well. Mella became a psychotherapist, and she has a particularly thoughtful and even poetic way of describing Susan's traits. What were some of the best personality traits that Susan Berman had? She had an unbelievable awareness for the value of um, human connection or relationships. Um, She had a a depth of love for those who were um, friends and family that was, and just an appreciation of how precious those relationships were uh, that was, um, I don't know, remarkable, uh, very, um, I think anyone would be sort of stunned. It would not be some your average person at all. She also was very bright and very entertaining. And, um, incredibly supportive. What do you mean by entertaining? Uh, She was a lot of fun and she had a way of drawing you out of yourself and making it a really good time. And she was a lot of fun to talk to. Lots of laughing. How smart was she? I'd say she's pretty much brilliant. I mean, that's 
is very, very bright. Let's um, now talk about some of Susan's, what you perceived as negative qualities. Okay. What were some of her negative qualities? She was incredibly manipulative, uh, fearful, extremely fearful, extremely controlling. She would soar high when she was going after something and she could, she could collapse. Have you previously described Susan as she could be vindictive if someone did something that she didn't like? Oh, yes. She, that was actually what I considered her worst quality. Okay. She was incredibly vindictive. It was disturbing to me. In spite of these negative traits, Mella felt an incredibly close bond with Susan. From your perspective, based on what you saw about Susan, how committed was she to you? Yeah, 100%. I felt like her number one priority. How much did, from your perspective, based on what you saw and experienced, how much did she love you? I felt extremely loved. Did you get those feelings from your father? No. Is it a fair statement that you were closer to Susan than either your biological mother or your father? Absolutely. She was my only parent. Susan's maternal presence in Mella's life came not a moment too soon. When Mella was only 15, she lived alone for a number of months while Susan and Paul moved to New York and attempted to mount a musical they wrote about the Dreyfus Affair on Broadway. Susan and your father went to New York to try to produce this play, The Dreyfus Affair? Correct. And where did you stay when that happened? I stayed uh, Brentwood on Coin Street. How old were you at the time? I was 15. So was anyone living with you on Coin Street? Not for that period of time. Susan would come back and, and visit. Would, um, would your father check on you while he was gone? No. Would Susan check on you while you were gone? Yeah, I think we spoke daily. As we covered earlier in the season, the show was a flop. Paul Kaufman invested a large sum of Susan's money into it, and since the play never opened, they lost it all. It was the beginning of the end of Susan's relationship with Paul, but she and Mella were as close as ever. When Susan came back from New York and they had had a fight, I remember we were sitting in the park and the dogs were running around, and before she could even really get it out, I said, well, obviously I'm staying with you, which, you know, she was pretty thrilled about and tearful. And What was her demeanor when you told her, you know what, I want to stay with you? She was touched and relieved. There was a, a deep gratitude in our relationship as, as mother and daughter, having both kind of been orphans and found each other. Um, so our relationship, her being able to be a mother, me being able to be a daughter, was really precious. And probably like with a biological mom, she wouldn't have assumed that I would go elsewhere and neither would I. Mm -hmm. Except for I can see where maybe she had a little trepidation or fear since she didn't have legal custody. Sure. It's no surprise, given the amount of time Susan and Mella spent together, that Susan told her all about her childhood growing up in Las Vegas, the daughter of a mobster. Did she ever tell you what her childhood was like? Yes. What did she say? Um, well, she grew up with a mobster father and a mother who was emotionally collapsed. And she grew up in the Flamingo Hotel. And, um, you know, she had a very lavish life. She was treated like a princess. Her father was everything to her. Not that she didn't adore her mom, but her mom was not well. 
She told me about her birthday parties and she told me how she felt. She told me about her mean grandmother who she kicked in the shins for calling her mama shiksa. You mentioned birthday parties. How would she describe her childhood birthday parties growing up? Lavish. I remember her specifically saying that there were like rooms full of gifts she and that, you know, Liberace came to one of her birthdays and performed and... Did she tell you whether she had any bodyguards? Yes, she grew up with bodyguards. Did she tell you she would do stuff with them socially growing up? Yeah, yeah. They would drive her around, she'd hang out with them, they might play cards, they'd order room service. In addition to these early anecdotes, Mella shared the more recent memory of a conversation with Susan, one that stuck with Mella and one that is important in the prosecution's case against Robert Durst. How old were you approximately when this conversation took place? 12 or 13 in there, Th probably 13, 14 actually. What was the context under uh, which this discussion came up between you and Susan, to the best of your memory? We went to the UCLA library to research a feminist interpretation of the Bible for my English class. And um, when we were leaving, I believe, um, we were on sunset. Um, and she was, you know, it was just another interesting story she was telling me. And she was telling me about um, her friend and how his wife had disappeared and how she had been an alibi or made a phone call for him so that it wasn't suspicious. And um, she left it kind of like a cliffhanger. I, you know, I was, she left me in suspense, like, did he do it? And she kind of smirked and said, I don't know, you know, what do you think, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And at the time when she was saying this to you, did she use um, names of who was involved or she just referred to this as a friend? Names. Okay. Who was she talking about? Uh, Bobby Durst and his um, wife, Kath Kathleen. Okay. Well, did she use the word Kathleen, or did she just say his wife? Uh, I, I can't really remember at this point. At the end of that conversation, did you know whether, based on what Susan told you, Bobby Durst was involved with his missing wife, his disappearance of his wife? It was heavily implied. I was not certain. To strike, Your Honor. Overall. And when you say it was heavily implied, was this be go along with the way Susan would tell this story to you and leaving it suspenseful? Yes. How certain are you that Susan Berman told you that she helped her friend Bobby? with this situation by providing some sort of an alibi? Completely. Is there any doubt in your mind? No. Given everything that Mella had come to know about Susan, she did not seem surprised by Susan's attitude in this matter. Based on these discussions you had with her and your experiences you had with her, did you form opinions as to what her sense of loyalty was. Yeah. Yeah, she was one of the most loyal people I've ever known. Loyalty came first. Maybe right after whatever she felt she had to do to survive in terms of manipulation. But she was incredibly loyal. And 
you know, I sort of deduced at one point that, you know, that, that likely came from her morals and her upbringing. I mean, there was a, a mobster-like loyalty. It wasn't about right or wrong. It was just about loyalty. Are you saying that with Susan, it wasn't necessarily about right or wrong? It was more about loyalty? Yes. Did she ever hesitate, in your experience, to help someone close to her with a problem, even if it, they had done something wrong? Never hesitated. There wasn't even a sense of it being right or wrong. It was just an issue of taking care of a loved one's problem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it came time for cross-examination, the defense tried to cast doubt on this alleged conversation, drawing attention to the fact that Mella did not tell law enforcement about it back in 2001. This is Durst attorney David Chesnov. When you spoke to the police in 2001, did you at any time make any mention of your conversation that you allegedly had with Susan while you were driving past UCLA on Sunset? I don't recall. Would it help you recall if I were to show you um, a copy of your interview? Sure. May I approach your honor? May. Thank you. Has that helped refresh your recollection whether March 21st, 2001, when you were interviewed by Detective Coulter and Detective Stevens, that you never mentioned anything about your conversation that allegedly took place at UCLA? Right. It reminds that you did not. I did not. Okay. When Habib Balian returned to the lectern for redirect, he brought up a number of other occasions in the years following Susan's death, when Mella, in fact, did share this story. And the import of the questions was that the first revelation of this story came when you spoke to Mr. Loon. Right. So I want to take this step by step. In 2001, when the police came and spoke to you, and your mother had just been killed, did you connect the dots that this killing was done by Bobby Durst? I was not thinking in those terms at all. Did the police, the detectives in 2001, ask you any questions whatsoever about Bobby Durst? I don't believe so. Okay. So now we'll go to the next time you were spoken with, and that's in 2013 when you spoke with Mark Smerling and Andrew Dreck. Do you remember what you did or didn't speak to them about exactly during that interview? Not at all. Would it refresh your recollection to look at a transcript of that interview? Sure. May I approach? You may. Is that your first recollection? Yes. So then in 2013, when you spoke with Mark Smerling, did you or did you not tell them that Susan had told you this version of events about his wife's disappearance and, you know, her being a false alibi? I did, and in fact... I can also say that from the moment of contact with them, 
I was clear about the danger and threat with the assumption that Bobby Durst had done it already. Let's go to your interview with Detective Romero when he came out and spoke with you. Now, this is in 2015. Mm -hmm. Contrary to whatever you were asked on cross-examination about what you did or did not say, do you remember exactly what you told Detective Romero on this topic back then? Not at all. Would it refresh your recollection to look at the police report from that interview? Sure, yes. Does that refresh your recollection? Yes. So did you in fact discuss with Detective Romero that you had this conversation with Susan? Yes, I did. And did you tell Detective Romero that Susan had told you a story about being an alibi for Bob during his wife's disappearance? Yes. So does this kind of refresh your memory now seeing all this stuff that actually you have told these events to law enforcement throughout the years? Yes. Was it to John Lewin the first time you ever mentioned this? No, I'm sorry. This conversation was not the only part of Mella's testimony that went to a crucial detail in the prosecution's case. Did Susan have uh, dogs while you knew her and lived at Benedict Canyon? Yes. Do you remember their names? Her dog, Lulu, had a breed when we were on Coin Street. By the time she was on Benedict Canyon, she had three of them, Romeo, Golda, and Lulu. How much did Susan either like or not like her dogs? She adored her dogs. You know, my old clothes or just clothes I left behind for college were used to clean up their messes. It's like the dogs were, uh, I don't know how to even explain it. You know? they, they meant a lot to her? They meant a lot to her, yeah. As we reported earlier in the season, Susan's dog led investigators to discover her body at her Benedict Canyon Drive home. What's important here for the prosecution is not merely the fact that Susan was devoted to her dogs, but the fact that their loud barking would certainly alert Susan to any potential intruder. Did she keep them all together, usually? No. By Benedict Canyon, they really couldn't be in the same room. What were they like, the dogs? Extremely yippy, loud, and tons of pent-up energy, and they were sort of prone to attacking each other by the time she lived on Benedict Canyon. Okay. And so she kept them in separate rooms. When someone would uh, come to the front door or knock on the door, how would the dogs react? They would just freak out. Yeah. It was chaos. And when you say chaos, we're talking about barking? Barking, attacking each other. They could have to be rushed to the vet. Like one would bite the other in the jugular. I don't know. They had gone crazy at that point. It was just insane. Did the dogs wear leashes? Always. When you say always, what do you mean by that? Um, you know, by the time we were on Benedict Canyon, they, they really had gone kind of nuts. Not in a cute way. And uh, she handled it by having a leash on each one and putting them in separate rooms. And so the leashes were always there so she could, you know, separate. Okay. So one of these dogs had a leash on it. Would that mean that Susan had taken them for a walk? No. How often did Susan walk these dogs outside of the prop, away from the property? Benedict Canyon, that's zero. She never took them for walks? Not from there, no. There weren't sidewalks. Given the close bond between Susan and Mella, it seems all the more tragic that their relationship came to an end about 18 months before Susan's death. What was your relationship with Susan just prior to her death? 
It was very estranged. She had cut off contact with me because as I was individuating in college, I decided to go visit my biological sister in New Hampshire for the first time and it was cutting into half of the break where I would return home. And she was outraged and ended the relationship. I likely could have mended, but I was pretty stubborn at the time. Did Susan try to at all manipulate you to get you to not go there and, and stay with her? I mean, by saying that she was no longer my mother, I'd say that was a pretty strong manipulation. Yeah. Attempt. How long of a period did you go without speaking to Susan before her death? Probably a year and a half. In the coming weeks, we expect to hear more witness testimony about Susan Berman's life and personality. We'll continue to bring you the latest updates from the trial and up-to-the-minute breaking news on what's going on with Robert Durst. Join us Tuesday for our next regularly scheduled episode when I'll discuss the latest events of the trial with my co-host Brittany Bookbinder and reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the case for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. This week, we'll also begin our deep dive into the life of Robert Durst. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Automatically receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>